Welcome to the Global Media Cultures Podcast. I am your host, Juan Llamas Rodriguez. Today we are discussing music videos, political solidarity, and blackness in the United Kingdom. Our guest is Dr. Mohan Ambikaipaker. He's an associate professor in the Department of Communication at Tulane University, specializing in critical race theory and decolonial and postcolonial studies. He's the author of the ethnography Political Blackness in Multiracial Britain, published by University of Pennsylvania Press in 2018, an examination of the lived experiences of African Caribbean and South Asian communities confronting racial violence and policing violence in London. He has also published extensively in journals such as Communication, Culture, and Critique, Postcolonial Studies, Ethnic and Racial Studies, and the Journal for Intercultural Studies. Ambikai Packer's research and teaching comprises three strands, the UK, the US, and Malaysia, and engages comparative research in theorizing connections between liberal democratic political systems and the reproduction of racial regimes. Boam, welcome to the Global Media Cultures Podcast. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start asking you about these research interests. Um, why are these topics interest to you, and why are they an important area for us to study? Well, I uh, embarked on this work around racial formations, radical grassroots politics, you know, cultural work in in Britain, in ways that were informed by my own uh, you know, personal, political, historical biography, I guess. Um, you know, so I'm uh, originally from Malaysia, which was a former British colony. And you know, my grandparents uh, moved to Malaysia from Sri Lanka, which was another uh, British colony. And so my family's history has been you know, deeply imprinted by the British Empire and its history. Uh, the UK still is a place where you know many Malaysians go to for studies and um, you know to migrate and, and settle. So I've got family who that's come through that way and settled in in the UK um, as well. So it was really a way to try to understand, I guess, what Edward Said said about the traces of history in you. You know how you've been shaped. You know by the forces of history, and so I wanted to understand how I had been shaped you know, uh, by the forces of the British Empire, its raciology, um, which has, you know, impacted my family in very profound ways. So when I was an undergraduate, um, you know, in, in, Phil- in the Philadelphia region, where I was a part of the Black uh, Cultural Center at my university. And it was actually while I was the librarian in the Black Cultural Center at Swarthmore College that I came upon this book called A Different Hunger by A. Sivanandan, Sivanandan that uh, is a very, is a classic book. And A. Sivanandan is a Sri Lankan Tamil, like myself, who, who is a big figure in the Black movement and history of the UK. And so suddenly all of it, you know, it all kind of came together. And eventually this became my dissertation topic. I wanted to go to the UK to study how these political imaginaries you know, uh, were working out on the ground. I had read about them, but I wanted to be a part of it. 
so the the first book is as an ethnography, and now you're uh, the article that we're discussing is specifically thinking about uh, media and, and music, right? So it's interesting to see those connections and continuities as, as well. The article we're discussing is Music Videos and the War on Terror in Britain, uh, Benjamin Stephanias' Infrapolitical Blackness in Wrong Radio, um, which was published in Communication, Culture, and Critique in 2015. Um, and what I wanted to know is, could you give us a brief history of this essay as, as it came about um, in terms of how you began working on it? Um, how did the idea sort of change in the process of working, working through it and examining this video? So I initially didn't want to do something on media or culture, and I thought it was uh, more productive to try to go and actually look at kind of everyday life to see how these formations were playing a role, you know, in that sense, and not just through, you know, artistic endeavors, which were important. I, I was interested in that uh, as well. But once I had done the ethnography, then, then you know, it, during the course of being there, and uh, being a part of the scene, of course, I was also uh, captivated by all the artistic production being produced. So this, in a sense, was then going back to some of the more media-oriented or, um, you know, cultural text-oriented uh, studies. Right, right. Yeah, so in some ways, it seems it's coming at the, at the question uh, from different angles, but still somewhat interrelated, right? Like, even if you are studying the sort of everyday practices, um, cultural objects are still very much a part of that. Um, or if we are studying the media cultural objects, we, we can't divorce those from, um, from the everyday practices that, that they emerge too. That's right. I think that that's very accurate. So as you point out, the, what, what your focus is on is on blackness and the formation of black identity, uh, in Britain, um, which is distinct from how, we might think about it in those of us based in the, in the United States. So could we start by thinking a little bit more about the sort of the background, the social and political context of black identity formation in Britain, um, let's say in this latter half of the, of the century. So, you know, blackness, racial formations do not, you know, replicate themselves uh, identically all across the world. I mean, even if you go say to Brazil, you'll find that blackness there has a, a complexity that that is different from the complexity of of U.S. Uh, blackness. And um, you know, in in the case of the 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 U.K. now, you know, within the type of racial um, systems that the empire practiced, you know, the there were many different kinds of black people in the colonial imaginary depending on where the British Empire was located. I mean, you know, they you know, you gotta remember they 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 were in charge of more than a like quarter of the the planet's landmass at one point. And that's an incredible yeah. amount of <laughs> you know people, cultures, diversities that that were that were needing to be ordered, right, and managed as a part of the mm. the the task of empire, right? And so you know, race was the tool that allowed the Western imagination, the imperial imagination, to categorize, classify, organize, and manage this incredible diverse populations that, that they were now ruling over, you know. Um, and so the scene looks different, you know, in different places, but they had this one uh, epistemological tool, race, 
you know, to to make sense of what they right. were encountering. And we were all sort of um, marshaled into this this epistemological frame, you know, and given identities, you know, according to these frames that had been set up by um, by the empire, right? In in many ways, the traditional narrative is like after World War II, you get like mass migrations of um, people of color, you know, from what's known as new Commonwealth countries, you know, com- co- countries that are not white settler countries, you know, um, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, were white settler countries. They were called Dominion uh, colonies, you know, and they had a very different privileged status. You know, it was called kith and kin when you can demonstrate. Uh, biological relationships, you know, to to white people in Britain, you were given a different kind of treatment, access to Britain. For masses of uh, non-white folks from the same empire to come to Britain, be allowed to come to Britain, you know, was was significant, right? But it was because they were coming not as immigrants, as the story to date you know, is sort of often told, but they were coming as empire subjects. They too were British, <laughs> you know, they, and, and in fact, the migrations occurred because Britain had been devastated by World War II. It needed a quick and cheap source of, uh, you know, labor. And uh, they were pooling this, this migration um, and labor source from, from the colonies, from the new Commonwealth co- colonies, Jamaica, Trinidad, you know, Malaysia, um, different places, you know, like nurses from Malaysia, transport workers from Trinidad, et cetera, et cetera. So there was an invitation for British people to come to Britain to sort of participate in the resurrection of the motherland, as it were, you know, and this is why people went over there. They they didn't necessarily see themselves as leaving uh, the empire. They were just going to the heart of the empire which was what they had been a part of for, for many years. So, so when we have these uh, mass migrations, you know, and, and the beginnings of kind of mass settlement of uh, British subjects, you know, non-white British subjects into Britain, now that process was an incredibly violent process. So the, the, the state and the empire wanted to have cheap labor very quickly, uh, you know, to rebuild uh, Britain, it sent out this invitation. Said like, "Hey, you know, uh, we are looking for people to work on London transport, or people, you know, to to work in um, the the um, national health service that was starting. You know, uh, that was the reward for for ordinary Brit- Britons for having gone through the war. There's going to be socialized medicines, but didn't have the adequate nurses. They didn't have adequate doctors. So, I mean, you know, like 30 over percent of the doctors of the National Health Service, which was one of the, the big socialist achievements, you know, uh, in the world, like, you know, was based on being able to draw upon labor, both medical labor, nursing labor, and other kinds of labor from, from the colonies. But the you know, um, social reception that they received when they came in and they started to become a part of everyday society was a violent process. And it immediately became the materials out of which um, racist discourses started to organize themselves around and political discourses started organizing themselves around. All of that narrative got changed to like, these are migrants swamping, you know, uh, white Britain. 
you know, narrative became a racialized right. uh, narrative in a new way. And so that's where you get, you know, the rise of anti-immigration politics, the rise of anti-immigration uh, political leaders. And Pavel is a very uh, important leader in this development. Um, you get you get the mainstreaming of the idea that people from the British Empire, from the non-white parts, the new Commonwealth parts of British Empire, are, do not belong in Britain. It's a new idea because for most of the British Empire history they were trying to say no it's a really good thing you are being ruled by us and then all of a sudden they say no actually you're not a part of us so it is under these kinds of conditions political conditions you know that the idea of political blackness emerges so you know we can think about those conditions as giving the sort of maybe objective situational context by which you know um people you know needed to confront common problems, whether you are from Jamaica, Malaysia, Trinidad, Nigeria, you are being seen by white Britons and by this new political anti-immigration imaginary coming up as, as sort of being a an interloping presence in the motherland of the empire. You shouldn't be inside here, right? So that, that of course, is a very difficult uh, situation. So the early organizations, you know, uh, banded together around some of these kind of common uh, issues. Now, that's that's maybe the non-agentive part of it. The agentive part of of the formation was also that in this movement, you are seeing a lot of uh, radical organizers, political leaders, also being a part of these circulations you know, transatlantic circulations that are taking place, global circulations that are taking place. It used to be a joke when I when I was doing field work, some people say like, oh, all black politics in the UK is Guyanese, you know, because of the Indian, you know, African dynamic, you know, because everything that was kind of worked out in Guyana got sort of replicated in the production right. of, of um, political organizations, movements, you know, uh, things of that nature. And they took a lot from... The U.S. as well, where some of them, like Claudia Jones and C.L.R. James, had already been and had already sort of uh, been a part of the black uh, movements here. So you you see some of the organizations, you know, they 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 invited M.L.K. Malcolm X, you know, over you know to uh, to Britain, and um, those visits that they organized, you know, with black power uh, figures were influential in creating parallel organizations and movements in the UK. I mean, the, uh, the British um, Black Panthers, for example, you know, were, were formed, you know, in right. in replication of, of uh, the Black Panthers in, in the US, but with this different type of composition of who was Black in, in the UK. So I would say that there's two, there's two things. There's kind of these objective conditions, but there was also the agentive, you know, circulations and political activities of anti-colonial, you know, figures, you know, from the Caribbean and South Asia, you know, um, that were uh, bringing their anti-colonial uh, background into creating these new kinds of political formations. It's interesting to trace all those different dynamics coming together um, and building on each other, right? It's the uh the anti-colonial movements, which get transposed um, into anti-racist movements, the sort of um, legacies of colonial classification and hierarchies through the, the notion of race um, allows then to be reappropriated for a sort of transnational solidarity, right? And the sort of multi-racial blackness that um, allows for Afro-Asian 
uh, co-identification as well. So within this, one of the um, concepts that you, you talk about and that you find is helpful to think about uh, to Stephanie's work is infrapolitical blackness. Um, could, could you talk a little bit about where this concept comes from and why, why you find it generative to think through these, um, these political dynamics, but then also Stephanie's work? Sure. Um, I came up with the term uh, infopolitical blackness myself. It was a, um, a conceptual term that I uh, utilized and tried out in, in, in this article to think about people like Benjamin Zephaniah and also the, 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 the political black uh, movements and politics in the UK in our current contemporary time, right? Uh, certainly somebody like black, uh, Benjamin Zephaniah came from an earlier period where uh, blackness was far more um, solidified as a uh, solidarity practice among particular communities. But, you know, today, you know, the, the work of trying to conceptualize, you know, solidarity politics, you know, among what, say, we would call people of color is so complicated, you know. And so it, it's, it, it lends itself to, the, to a question of, like, how is it going to re-manifest itself? And so this is why I think that, you know, political blackness today is, is less a um, overt phenomena uh, and functions more as a sort of uh, informing uh, politics, you know, a kind of becoming politics, you know, that 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 has um, that is there, but is far more involved in the in the work of trying to search for uh, the solidarity rather than uh, dealing with conditions where we already have very self-evident common problems to deal with. It's because of the, the, the increased complexities of population, communities, dynamics, uh, histories, you know, the, the search for common ground, the search for solidarity, the search for the basis, uh, you know, of a political blackness, I think is much more the question than um, in an earlier period. So I termed it infrapolitical, you know, in a sense to to build upon um, the political theorist James Scott, you know, whose notion of infrapolitics, uh, you know, in his ethnographies, actually in Malaysia, as a matter of fact, among the peasantry in Malaysia, you know, talked about, you know, the kinds of politics where you're not able to sort of frontally announce, you know, an agenda, an ideology or, or practice because of uh, asymmetries in power uh, and peasant forms of resistance often misunderstood as being lackadaisical or, um, you know, not proletarian enough and things of that nature, you know, have their own logics, have their own dynamics. And for me, infrapolitical blackness today, you know, is, is, no, is no longer the sort of like, you know, black power moment of like, you know, organizations, militant posturing, you know, interventions, but far more peasant-like, if you want to, to use that analogy, or far more under the, the radar, you know, under the, the, the open transcript, as Scott would say, right? Right, right. Yeah, it seems like an, an operative part of this is, um, we could say, emergence, right? It's, it's less that there's a pre-set 
that the conditions have sort of set where the solidarity is always taken for granted. And now the question is how to like act on it, but rather, as you point out, there are those sort of civil society institutions, um, but there's also the question of like, given the change in context at the end of the 20th century, beginning of the 21st century, um, it's more, the question more, the leading question is more, how do we build that solidarity, right? Or what are the points of connection? Yeah. Uh, and so that driving question leads to a different kind of impetus, but also kind of different practices um, that are more searching for um, searching rather than definitive in that sense, right? I think so. And, you know, some of the history too has been like, I mean, this is quite different in the UK than in the US, but, you know, there were in certain limited contexts, you know, um, political blackness also became institutionalized. I mean, for a period, it was institutionalized in state practices where black was adopted as the sort of, you know, social policy delivery uh, mechanisms, you know, black communities, servicing black communities, and by that the state meant all minority communities, you know, uh, sort of in uniform ways was was sort of its, uh, you know, policymaking language, you know, until it was dropped in the 1990s. And then that that took a turn to, to being, you know, this hyper-ethnicized model of uh, service delivery that, that created a lot of uh, you know, the, the scholarship shows that you know, it created an incredible uh, fragmentary pressure on a lot of the solidarities big, built up because the state was encouraging. I mean, if you were Guyanese and if you applied to, to form a Guyanese organization and as opposed to a Trinidadian organization, then you could get, you know, money and funding. And so, you know, not only the South Asian, uh, Afro-Caribbean thing, yeah. but, you know, it fractured in so many different kinds of ways. And of course, also the dynamics of like, you know, which communities um, had by the 20th century, some communities had, had kind of achieved social mobility, some communities had not, you know, like the Indian community, you know, by and large had, had sort of done pretty well, you know, for certain structural reasons, you know, um, other communities like Pakistani Bangladeshi communities are some of the poorest communities. Uh, Afro-Caribbean communities are actually quite have done quite well in sort of educational uh, terms, especially uh, um, Afro-Caribbean women are, are very high achieving uh, educationally as compared to say Afro-Caribbean boys. And so there, there were just, you know, we are, we are dealing with such a very different uh, complexity. And so what does it mean to create solidarity now and be attentive to these asymmetries within the communities? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, one, the sort of mainstream um, repeated point is that race is a social construct, but I, I think a lot of the changes that you're pointing at is also how race is an institutional construct in both the government um, instituting separate kind of uh, funding and resources, depending on how you ally yourself uh, ethnically or racially, um, and then institutions co-opting that too, right? Becoming the quote-unquote like the black candidate, but not really standing in for any issues in particular that are progressive or that are helping um, any of the groups in this sort of the multiracial um, coalition. So the the role that institutions play in shaping and, and co-opting those those identities is also mm -hmm. crucial to think about here, right? Yeah. So let's let's talk about the cultural uh, media aspect of this. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about who Benjamin Zephaniah is um, and the sort of his work and how does he fit into all of this? 
Sure. I mean, um, Benjamin Zephaniah is sort of an iconic person, um, you know, today in in Britain and in, in British cultural terms. I mean, he's often uh, an ambassador for for Britain in in British Council programs, you know, uh, abroad and and things of that nature. You know, he he is often on on very uh, prominent, you know, official cultural. Um, institutions, competitions, prizes, things of that nature, exhibitions. Um, so he's a very important, uh, prominent voice. He's also very radical. You know, he rejected, um, you know, the honorifics by the queen, like, you know, to become a sir. And uh, I guess, you know, he he's straddling a difficult terrain where, he, you know, today he's, he's quite uh, a prestigious icon, you know, compared to, you know, two decades ago, three decades ago. Uh, yet at the same time, you know, he's he's continuing to kind of level critiques against empire, critiques against racism, you know, while occupying this this very prominent cultural institutional uh, position. That's who he is. In, I would, you know, I would say, you know, today. But, you know, um, my experience with the kind of, you know, work uh, that he does is that, you know, he, he has always, you know, kept his ear to the ground. He has always been, um, you know, dedicated to, to, to using, you know, art, um, you know, to talk about the, the, the issues involving, uh, oppressed communities, you know, in, in the UK. And also, you know, as with any, uh, you know, marginalized person of color, you know, especially from working class backgrounds who maybe one member uh, makes it, but, you know, his family, you know, doesn't, doesn't have that same kind of like, uh, uniform social mobility. So, you know, he, as I mentioned, you know, had uh, a family member who had been, um, killed by, by the police and, you know, the, the, um, Michael Powell campaign, you know, uh, is a very famous campaign for, for social justice, racial justice in, in the UK. And, you know, he was involved in that for a very long time. And so he has very firsthand experience about how difficult it is to get, you know, justice for uh, police violence, right? You know, uh, you know, against the state. So, you know, he, he doesn't embrace his newfound uh, prominence easily. And and so he he has continued to do work I think that is very critical of of Britain and its social relationships its racial relationships he's very well known as being a kind of founding figure in dub poetry dub poetry you know it's kind of a Caribbean originated form you know it's kind of spoken word uh, poetry over uh, reggae rhythms you know uh, would be one simple way to kind of characterize. Uh, what it what it is, but yeah, children's author, dub poetry pioneer figure, you know, uh, in his own way, activist. I mean, you know, he he used to get very annoyed. He gave critiques against certain other. I, I won't mention some of the other radical music groups and musicians who sort of got too um, big headed. You know, wouldn't go down to the local police station for a demo that weekend he would you know in my conversation he'd get you know annoyed and annoyed. he would still he would still turn up when i was there he turned up for all the the local demos you know we had a, a raid an anti-terrorism raid that mistakenly targeted you know a bangladeshi family he was there you know uh up front you know like being a part of the protest you know like 
carries that kind of 60s, 70s protest culture thing, feels like you have to go down to the ground, you know, to make people's voices felt and that the artist should be a part of that in as much as kind of negotiating with with uh, executives, you know, and, and trying to kind of do that type of, oh, I'm, I'm a radical artist because I put out a radical song. But he really also, in my observational um, experience, you know, is also somebody who actually is there in the police station demo. And how could he not be? It's his cousin, you know? that. So that, I think, maybe gives a, right. a, some kind of yeah. insight to who he is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's And it's it marks a, an important distinction in that it's not just the the text of the works that is doing the or espousing the radical politics, but it's also the actions of the artist uh, tied to um, what he's saying in the children's books or in the poetry um, as well, which makes an important distinction from from other artists who who don't do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the the piece that you analyze specifically in this article is Wrong Radio, um, which started as a as a poem and um, became uh, I guess a song and a, a music video. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about what are the, the politics of wrong radio? Like what is the, and how is it making these connections in terms of like political blackness? Yeah. So I, I think like, as I said, it's, it's not, uh, when you watch the video, you don't, you don't immediately see like a, like a, pl- a banner that's saying like, you know, we are black or black and white unite. Uh, and fight it's it's not announcing its politics that way right like you know you you have to kind of search mm-hmm. for the connections you know uh for yourselves to make those connections for yourselves and like what he's saying and how he's visualizing the poem in the music video uh you know with with, with the you know directors of the of the the production as well and so it's the, in that sense that's what i call infrapolitical right so you know it's just uh this is something that you will have to um do the work to to actually um understand the political messaging that's coming in uh in a more subtle way than than say a direct uh spoken word form or something like that right although you know when you when you hear him it, you know his politics are, are pretty is pretty um uh explicit i mean the the songs about many different things it's uh it's uh, on the one hand a song uh, about the ways in which the persona is is sort of deeply colonized, you know, in the contemporary uh, sense. Like you know, it's a it's a persona that's trying to reflect on the ways in which uh, his political consciousness has become corrupted. You know, uh, largely in the face of mm-hmm. uh, the the you know the opiates that we have, as it were, you know, in in consumer culture, in uh, media, in in tabloid culture. In in the UK, this is kind of a thing. Tabloid culture is kind of a big, uh, um, you know, point of social critique. You know, like the kinds of things that are seen. You know, like a People magazine type of you know, notion, you know, like uh, gossip culture, celebrity culture, all of that kind of stuff, you know, which which in a, some sense, I think the poem is saying is kind of colonized, you know, working class black consciousness, right? Political consciousness kind of um, 
dampened and, and dumbed it down, you know, like, uh, uh, but also, you know, uh, high culture, like, you know, there's a line in there. I had to know what the stock market did today. I had to know that it, you know, uh, went up 1%, you know, like this idea of how, what kind of subjects are we? What is it that's important in life? You know, the stock market is important. A mortgage is important. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, what is not important? Oh, you know, a child in Palestine doesn't matter at all. You know, when he when he juxtaposes, you know, things like that, you know, uh, that's that's what you kind of um, get a sense of. You know, he his project in in that. Uh, moment i think it's a it's a poem you know address i mean of course universally but i think also address to to black people writ writ large right like you know um you know to to think about where we are at in terms of um our political imagination and our political um orientations and our political commitments you know and at the same time i think you know he the backdrop that story that you see as he's narrating all of this stuff is the story of this, uh, what looks like a, a South Asian man being released, you know, from prison detention. There, there's a lot of Abu Ghraib type images uh, in black and white that um, that form a part of his story, that character's story, you know. So it's, it's very, the person's been kind of, the hint is it's been tortured, traumatized, you know, being released, you know, just uh, walking normally down the streets, taking a, a train, trying to come back home. So, you know, here you have these two, these different levels, you know, there's, there's all of these kind of social mobility, consumption, celebrity, you know, stock market, neoliberal, you know, ethos, you know, going on that's captivating, you know, working class people and people of color. And then here are, you know, the people who are being tortured, in, in detention cells just down the road, you know, tortured, brutalized, yeah. and then released to come home, lives broken. Right, right. Yeah, as you point out, it's, it's part of the uh, drawing attention and critiquing the what is it that we value and what is it that we don't value. And so much of that has to be like, we value finance and um, debt culture um, and consumerism broadly, but we're not thinking about all of these lives that don't count, right? Or that may to not count. Um, but also I think as uh, the way you phrase it is that he's also being very self-reflexive about not being a sort of coherent black political subject, right? So as, as, you, as you mentioned, addressing the um, black subject in the UK about what it is that we are valuing and what it is that we are not. And what is it the things that we are um, drawn to, or it's tabloid culture, whether it's the buying the fancy or expensive car, um, and what are the what are the implications of that, or what are we losing in that coalition uh, politics as well? Right. Yeah. So, what's interesting about Wrong Radio Two, as as you mentioned, it's it has the the um, legacy of um, dub poetry, and it is which is now accepted and uh, Sefnaya is um, put in as a, as a representative for British poetry. Um, but then it's also bringing in music um, in, the, in the song version. And then the, the, what you're analyzing is the music video. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is it about music, the music video version of, of Wrong Radio that is also interesting? You, you, I think you started to mention the, the sort of 
parallel narratives, right? With the um, Muslim man and Zephaniah himself appearing on the video. But what are some of the the potentials that you see in the in the media form of the music video to making these these sort of political connections? That the genre of music videos, when you go into the global south, uh, you know, when you and in, in the global south inside the 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 west, as it were, you know, is are doing different kinds of of things, you know, and I and I think that they are constituting, you know, um, counter hegemonic kinds of, uh, you know, image making, counter hegemonic kinds of, you know, subjectivity making, you know, political subjectivity making. Uh, at the same time, you know, and and in so doing, creating these kind of counter publics, right? Like you know, of, of people who are united through the 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 viewing you know, of this video, the dissemination, circulation, discussion around uh, the videos. And so, like, I'm interested in how the music video, you know, and, you know, theorizing around music video, you know, doesn't just depart from a kind of Western-centric um, genealogy of that genre. You know, like, you know, it, it started out in this particular way. It does these particular things. Right. Now, it, you know, I mean, it, the death of the music video was announced so many times you know, in, in Western music and, and popular culture industries, you know, but I don't, I you just follow that story. You're going to miss out how music videos, you know, occupy or, you know, have different historical trajectories in, in different parts of the world. And I can't say like, I have like this one, you know, uh, Uber theory about everything going on in the global South. But I would say that, you know, the capacity of uh, music videos to, um, you know, be devices where uh, political subjectivities are being constituted through this, these videos and through these songs is a very, very powerful. So I'm very interested in, in the work that music videos in the hands of, you know, what we used to call third world practitioners, whether they are in the West or whether they are in the global South, like what kind of imaginations and utilities do, do these practitioners put their music videos you know, to do, right? Uh, and I think that, that that's still an interesting question. I, I mean, I think more people should work on it because it's such a rich area to look at. You know, um, music videos around the Palestinian-African-American uh, connections, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's been a whole, um, you know, sort of output there of music videos that were doing that. And of course, you know, you, you, you can't get that representation of, uh, African American, Arab, African American, Palestinian, you know, culture making in in most other kinds of media um, genres or forums, you know, television, film is very difficult. Yeah. But there are a lot of music videos around the solidarity between yeah. African Americans and Palestinians. So just two other examples, you know, and I think Benjamin Zephaniah's, uh, you know, um, work kind of circulates. You know, we want to call it you know, independent, third world, global south, like it kind of circulates in these uh, channels and circulations of of uh, political affiliations, commitments, interests, you know, and so it's part of the, you know, the, the cultural, you know, ethos, you know, of, of that kind of um, networked, you know, global, society if you want right so a video comes up you know gets sent you know people look at it like you know it it 
launches a critique, it it brings up an issue, it reinforces a certain momentum in a movement. It does a lot of different kinds of things of that nature. Yeah, yeah. And as, as you mentioned, the, the barriers to entry are helpful in the proliferation of say, political, uh, politically engaged music videos, right? Because they might be cheaper to produce because uh, they're short and because they circulate a lot more than uh, would be some more of the legacy media, right? Like a TV show requires a lot more investment and infrastructure, and so does the film. So it makes sense that that these artists who are, are pushing for more um, political agendas or ideas are are drawn to the music video because of the this sort of narrative and symbolic capacities, but also because lower barriers to entry. Yeah, definitely. So one of the things you mentioned in, um, in the article is talking to your students about wrong radio. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk a little bit more either in this case in particular or about bringing in music videos to the classroom and talking about music videos that you're writing about and teaching and how does that influence or shape the analysis that you're thinking about too? Yeah, I think uh, they're very effective. I mean, you know, they're short, they're they're well-produced, high production quality, Mm -hmm. you know. So uh, it is a very, um, I think, efficacious instrument to to try to kind of generate uh, discussion. People are always wanting to talk about uh, the music video. You show it for four or five minutes, you know, and then it's a good conversation starter. You know, and oftentimes, I mean, I, I use another right. political um, music video artist, uh, you know, Low Key, you know, who was a British, yeah, Iraqi British uh, rapper, does a lot of uh, very uh, pointed critiques of uh, Western imperialism, and very um, famous for uh, this controversial video called Obama Nation, you know, that came out during the Obama presidency, critiquing the Obama mm. presidency as being a sort of, um, you know, uh, just another phase of, of imperialism, you know. And uh, I found that when I tried to teach, and, and certainly during that period where um, it seemed like, you know, it seems strange today, but at one point, when I was teaching courses like critical race theory, I would often have a lot of students who were like, oh, no, we are, we are a post-racial world. You remember that was even in scholarship a lot, you know, that, that we were a post-racial world. Nobody ever mm-hmm. talks about mm-hmm. all the articles written <laughs> that announced the post-racial world anymore. <laughs> but it was a thing. Yeah. It was a thing. Yeah. And you, But, you know, I remember using that, that music video mm-hmm. to try to break through this notion that we were somehow still kind of you know on a racial progress trajectory that kind of would get better eventually with time in a natural order of things and when the low-key obama nation thing came out they were like oh my god like can you say that about the first black president you know it's so insulting and you know that uh, you know the the rappers involved they were like african-american rappers dead press other people were not only going after uh, Barack Obama. We're also going after Michelle Obama, you know, and 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 so this 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 was a, this was kind of shocking video. But you know the um, the the politics of the video is very sound. I mean, he it is the the documentation and citations of the the video is is absolutely ironclad. So whatever provocative questions that was being raised about you know what kind of a progressive turn is this 
you know, what does that look like? What is really going on? You know, first black president bombed a African nation in famine. You know, that was one of the lines in, in, in Obama nation, which he did, you know, like bomb Sudan, you know, like in the middle of a famine, you know, uh, you know, so first black president, what does it mean? You know, raising a question like that. Um, I remember, you know, in the context of the Obama years, you know, the music video could do, uh, you know, could cut through the veil as it were, you know, far more effectively than the critical articles I was assigning, you know, to get students to think critically, you know, the, the music video yep. went, went straight to the jugular and they were like, oh, okay, I, I guess we get what we are talking about right now. Great. So um, how have you built on this work since its publication? Well, uh, I, my next project actually kind of um, stemming from this strand of my research uh, interests, you know, is an archival uh, project. There, there's a uh, Malaysian um, poet who was very prominent uh, in the late 60s, 70s, you know, in the Black British scene. In, in the UK. His name is Cecil Rajendra. But it's become a bit of a forgotten uh, uh, figure now. But, you know, he he's written, he wrote a lot of uh, amazing uh, poems in, in the kind of 70s, uh, you know, Black Power uh, moment in the UK while he was then in UK. He's back in Malaysia now. Um, and so I've collected a lot of these poems. I've interviewed him. Um, and, you know, hoping to, 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 you know, put his contribution out there, uh, as part of this, you know, archive of political blackness, you know, and the cultural, you know, archive, artistic archive right. of political blackness, uh, which, you know, has barely, barely been, um, you know, mined, I, I would feel, I think people are beginning to, uh, you know, do it, but it's, it's, uh, there's, there's so much that, uh, has been forgotten. So uh, I think the impact of political blackness also is is global, uh, you know, and when we think about right. um, race, you know, the impact of race in modernity, you know, it, it cannot only be centered on the models that were developed, you know, in, in, the, in the horrific plantation economies and context of the U.S. South, which is one very important nodal point in modernity's, uh, you know, system of, of race. But there are all these other nodal points around the world that also have histories, uh, you know, interconnected, but may, but do not look exactly the, the same, you know. So I think political blackness is a part of that history and it has this archive. And I'm going to continue to try to resurrect that, that archive as one of the things that I do. Also, the other thing I'm doing is like, you know, I'm, researching anti-blackness and very specifically like you know uh uh blackness that is signified by you know Af african uh presence and africanity in in malaysia you know i feel like in this moment in the george Floyd moment black lives matter moment i mean it is part of my uh history with political blackness to say that i mean that's the kind of work that i can do there are other people doing other kinds of work in the in the US and the ground, you know, but I think everybody needs to ask themselves the questions about like, you know, what is the work that you are well suited to be able to do if you are in solidarity? Right, right. Yeah, for sure. I agree. 
Rohan, thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure. I was happy to be here. This episode of the Global Media Cultures podcast was produced by me and edited by Alan Yu, and closing credits music by Cloudmouth. This project is supported in part by the School of Arts, Technology, and Emerging Communication at the University of Texas at Dallas. The Global Media Cultures podcast introduces media scholarship about the world to the world. I'm Juan Yamas Rodriguez. Thank you for listening.